Chapter 4, Section 1 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 4, Painting and Sculpture. The statues and bas-reliefs which decorated the temples and tombs of ancient Egypt were, for the most part, painted. Coloured stones, such as granite, basalt, diorite, serpentine, and alabaster, sometimes escaped this law of polychrome, but in the case of sandstone, limestone, or wood, it was rigorously enforced. If sometimes we meet with uncoloured monuments in these materials, we may be sure that the paint has been accidentally rubbed off, or that the work is unfinished. The sculptor and the painter were, therefore, inseparably allied. The first had no sooner finished his share of the task than the other took it up and the same artist was often as skilful a master of the brush as of the chisel. Section 1. Drawing and Composition Of the system upon which drawing was taught by the Egyptian masters, we know nothing. They had learned from experience to determine the general proportions of the body and the invariable relations of the various parts one with another. But they never troubled themselves to tabulate those proportions or to reduce them to a system, Nothing in what remains to us of their works justifies the belief that they ever possessed a canon based upon the length of the human finger or foot. Theirs was a teaching of routine and not of theory. Models executed by the master were copied over and over again by his pupils till they could reproduce them with absolute exactness. That they also studied from life is shown by the facility with which they seized on a likeness or rendered the characteristics and movements of different kinds of animals. They made their first attempts upon slabs of limestone, on drawing boards covered with a coat of red or white stucco, or on the backs of old manuscripts of no value. New papyrus was too dear to be spoiled by the scrawls of tyros. Having neither pencil nor stylus, they made use of the reed, the end of which, when steeped in water, opened out into small fibres, and made a more or less fine brush, according to the size of the stem. The palette was of thin wood, in shape a rectangular oblong, with a groove in which to lay the brush at the lower end. At the upper end were two or more cup-like hollows, each fitted with a cake of ink, black and red being the colours most in use. A tiny pestle and mortar for colour grinding, and a cup of water in which to clip and wash the brush, completed the apparatus of the student. Palette in hand, he squatted cross-legged before his copy, and without any kind of support for his wrist, endeavoured to reproduce the outline in black. The master looked over his work when done, and corrected the errors in red ink. The few designs which have come down to us are drawn on pieces of limestone, and are for the most part in sufficiently bad preservation. The British Museum possesses two or three subjects in red outline, which may perhaps have been used as copies by the decorators of some Theban tomb about the time of the 20th dynasty. A fragment in the Museum of Giza contains studies of ducks or geese in black ink, and at Turin may be seen a sketch of a half-nude female figure bending backwards as about to turn a somersault. The lines are flowing, the movement is graceful, the modelling delicate. The draughtsman was not hampered then as now by the rigidity of the instrument between his fingers. The reed brush attacked the surface perpendicularly, broadened, diminished, or prolonged the line at will, and stopped or turned with the utmost readiness. So supple a medium was admirably adapted to this rapid rendering, 
of the humorous or ludicrous episodes of daily life. The Egyptians, naturally laughter-loving and satirical, were caricaturists from an early period. One of the Turin papyri chronicles the courtship of a shaven priest and a songstress of Ammon in a series of spirited vignettes, while on the back of the same sheet are sketched various serio-comic scenes in which animals parody the pursuits of civilised man. An ass, a lion, a crocodile and an ape are represented in the act of giving a vocal and instrumental concert. A lion and a gazelle play at draughts. The pharaoh of all the rats in a chariot drawn by dogs gallops to the assault of a fortress garrisoned by cats. A cat of fashion, with a flower on her head, has come to blows with a goose, and the hapless fowl, powerless in so unequal a contest, topples over with terror. Cats, by the way, were the favourite animals of Egyptian caricaturists. An ostracon in the New York Museum depicts a cat of rank on garde toilette, seated in an easy chair, and a miserable tom with piteous mane and tail between his legs, serving her with refreshments. Our catalogue of comic sketches is brief, but the abundance of pen drawings with which certain religious works were illustrated compensates for our poverty in secular subjects. These works are The Book of the Dead and The Book of Knowing That Which Is in Hades, which were reproduced by hundreds according to standard copies preserved in the temples or handed down through families, whose hereditary profession it was to conduct the services for the dead. When making these illustrations, the artist had no occasion to draw upon his imagination. He had but to imitate the copy as skilfully as he could. Of the Book of Knowing That Which Is in Hades, we have no examples earlier than the time of the 20th dynasty, and these are poor enough in point of workmanship, the figures being little better than dot and line forms, badly proportioned and hastily scrawled. The extant specimens of the Book of the Dead are so numerous that a history of the art of miniature painting in ancient Egypt might be compiled from this source alone. The earliest date from the 18th dynasty, the more recent being contemporary with the first Caesars. The oldest copies are for the most part remarkably fine in execution. Each chapter has a vignette representing a god in human or animal form, a sacred emblem, or the deceased in adoration before a divinity. These little subjects are sometimes ranged horizontally at the top of the text, which is written in vertical columns. Sometimes, like the illuminated capitals in our medieval manuscripts, they are scattered throughout the pages. At certain points, large subjects fill the space from the top to the bottom of the papyrus. The burial scene comes at the beginning, the judgment of the soul about the middle, and the arrival of the deceased in the fields of Alu at the end of the work. In these, the artist seized the opportunity to display his skill and show what he could do. We here see the mummy of Hunefa placed upright before his stella and his tomb. The women of his family bewail him, and the men and the priest present offerings. The papyri of the princes and princesses of the family of Pinatem, in the Museum of Giza, show that the best traditions of the art were yet in force at Thebes in the time of the 21st dynasty. Under the succeeding dynasties, that art fell into a rapid decadence, and during some centuries the drawings continued to be coarse and valueless, the collapse of the Persian rule produced a period of renaissance. Tombs of the Greek time have yielded papyri with vignettes carefully executed in a dry and minute style, which offers a singular contrast to the breadth and boldness of the pharaonic ages. The broad-tipped reed pen was thrown aside for the pen with a fine point, and the scribes vied with each other as to which should trace the most attenuated lines. The details with which they overlooked their figures the elaboration of the beard and the hair and the folds of the garments are sometimes so minute 
that it is scarcely possible to distinguish them without a magnifying glass precious as these documents are they give a very insufficient idea of the ability and technical methods of the artists of ancient egypt it is to the walls of their temples and tombs that we must turn if we desire to study their principles of composition their conventional system differed materially from our own man or beast the subject was never anything but a profile relieved against a flat background their object therefore was to select forms which presented a characteristic outline capable of being reproduced in pure line upon a plain surface as regarded animal life the problem was in no wise complicated the profile of the back and the body the head and the neck carried in undulating lines parallel with the ground were outlined at one sweep of the pencil the legs also are well detached from the body the animals themselves are lifelike each with the gait and action and flexion of the limbs peculiar to its species the slow and measured tread of the ox the short step the meditative ear the ironical mouth of the ass the abrupt little trot of the goat the spring of the hunting greyhound are all rendered with invariable success of outline and expression turning from domestic animals to wild beasts the perfection of treatment is the same the calm strength of the lion in repose the stealthy and sleepy tread of the leopard the grimace of the ape the slender grace of the gazelle and the antelope have never been better expressed than in egypt but it was not so easy to project man the whole man upon a plain surface without some departure from nature a man cannot be satisfactorily reproduced by means of mere lines and a profile outline necessarily excludes too much of his person the form of the forehead and the nose the curvature of the lips the cut of the ear disappear when the head is drawn full face but on the other hand it is necessary that the bust should be presented full face in order to give the full development of the shoulders and that the two arms may be visible to the right and left of the body the contours of the trunk are best modelled in a three-quarters view whereas the legs show to most advantage when seen sideways the egyptians did not hesitate to combine these contradictory points of view in one single figure the head is almost always given in profile but is provided with a full-face eye and placed upon a full-faced bust the full-faced bust adorns a trunk seen from a three-quarters point of view and the trunk is supported upon legs depicted in profile very seldom do we meet with figures treated according to our own rules of perspective most of the minor personages represented in the tomb of Khnumhotep seem however to have made an effort to emancipate themselves from the law of malformation their bodies are given in profile as well as their heads and legs but they thrust forward first one shoulder and then the other in order to show both arms and the effect is not happy yet if we examine the treatment of the farm servant who is cramming a goose and above all the figure of the standing man who throws his weight upon the neck of a gazelle to make it kneel down we shall see that the action of the arms and hips is correctly rendered that the form of the back is quite right and that the prominence of the chest thrown forward in proportion as the shoulders and arms are thrown back is drawn without any exaggeration the wrestlers of the beni hassan tombs the dancers and servants of the theban catacombs attack struggle posture and go about their work with perfect naturalness and ease these however are exceptions tradition as a rule was stronger than nature and to the end of the chapter the egyptian masters continued to deform the human figure the men and women are actual monsters from the point of view of the anatomist and yet after all 
they are neither so ugly nor so ridiculous as might be supposed by those who have only seen the wretched copies so often made by our own modern artists. The wrong parts are joined to the right parts with so much skill that they seem to have grown there. The natural lines and the fictitious lines follow and complement each other so ingeniously that the former appear to give rise of necessity to the latter. The conventionalities of Egyptian art, once accepted, we cannot sufficiently admire the technical skill displayed by the draughtsman. His line was pure, firm, boldly begun, and as boldly prolonged. Ten or twelve strokes of the brush suffice to outline a figure the size of life. The whole head, from the nape of the neck to the rise of the throat above the collarbone, was executed at one sweep. Two long, undulating lines gave the external contour of the body from the armpits to the ends of the feet. Two more determined the outlines of the legs and two the arms. The detail of costume and ornaments, at first but summarily indicated, were afterwards taken up one by one and minutely finished. We may almost count the locks of the hair, the plaits of the linen, the inlayings of the girdles and bracelets. This mixture of artless science and intentional awkwardness, of rapid execution and patient finish, excludes neither elegance of form nor grace of attitude nor truth of movement. These personages are of strange aspect, but they live. And to those who will take the trouble to look at them without prejudice, their very strangeness has a charm about it, which is often lacking to works more recent in date and more strictly true to nature. We admit, then, that the Egyptians could draw. Were they, as it has been oftentimes asserted, ignorant of the art of composition? We shall take a scene at hazard from a Theban tomb, the scene which represents the funerary repast offered to Prince Horemheb by the members of his family. The subject is half ideal, half real. The dead man and those belonging to him who are no longer of this world are depicted in the society of the living. They are present yet aloof. They assist at the banquet, but do not actually take part in it. Horemheb sits on a folding stool to the left of the spectator. He dandles on his knee a little princess, daughter of Amenhotep III, whose foster-father he was, and who died before him. His mother, Suet, sits to his right hand, a little way behind, enthroned in a large chair. She holds his arm with her left hand, and with the right she offers him a lotus blossom and bud. A tiny gazelle, which was probably buried with her, like the pet gazelle, discovered beside Queen Isiemkeb, in the hiding-place at Deir el-Bari, is tied to one of the legs of the chair. This ghostly group is of heroic size, the rule being that gods are bigger than men, kings bigger than their subjects, and the dead bigger than the living. Horemheb, his mother, and the women standing before them occupy the front level or foreground. The relations and friends are ranged in line facing their deceased ancestors and appear to be talking one with another. The feast has begun. The jars of wine and beer placed in rows upon wooden stands are already unsealed. Two young slaves rub the hands and necks of the living guests with perfumes taken from an alabaster vase. Two women dressed in robes of ceremony present offerings to the group of dead, consisting of vases filled with flowers, perfumes, and grain. These they place in turn upon a square table. Three others dance, sing, and play upon the lute, by way of accompaniment to those acts of homage. In the picture, as in fact, the tomb is the place of entertainment. There is no other background to the scene than the wall covered with hieroglyphs along which the guests were seated during the ceremony. Elsewhere, the scene of action, if in the open country, is distinctly indicated by trees and tufts of grass, by red sand, if in the desert, 
and by a maze of reeds and lotus plants if in the marshes a lady of quality comes in from a walk one of her daughters being a thirst takes a long draught from a gullah two little naked children with shaven heads a boy and a girl run to meet their mother at the gate are made happy with toys brought home and handed to them by a servant a trellised enclosure covered with vines and trees laden with fruit are shown above yonder therefore is the garden but the lady and her daughters have passed through it without stopping and are now indoors the front of the house is half put in and half left out so that we may observe what is going on inside we accordingly see three attendants hastening to serve their mistresses with refreshments the picture is not badly composed and would need but little alteration if transferred to a modern canvas the same old awkwardness or rather the same old obstinate custom which compelled the egyptian artist to put a profile head upon a full-face bust has however prevented him from placing his middle distance and background behind his foreground he has therefore been reduced to adopt certain more or less ingenious contrivances in order to make up for an almost complete absence of perspective again when a number of persons engaged in the simultaneous performance of any given act were represented on the same level they were isolated as much as possible so that each man's profile might not cover that of his neighbour when this was not done they were arranged to overlap each other and thus despite the fact that all stood on the one level so that they have actually but two dimensions and no thickness a herdsman walking in the midst of his oxen plants his feet upon precisely the same ground line as the beast which interposes between his body and the spectator the most distant soldier of a company which advances in good marching order to the sound of the trumpet has his head and feet on exactly the same level as the head and feet of the foremost among his comrades when a squadron of chariots defiles before the pharaoh one would declare that their wheels all ran in the selfsame ruts were it not that the body of the first chariot partially hides the horse by which the second chariot is drawn in these examples the people and objects are either accidentally or naturally placed so near together that the anomaly does not strike one as too glaring in taking these liberties the egyptian artist but anticipated a contrivance adopted by the greek sculptor of a later age elsewhere the egyptian has occasionally approached nearer to the truth of treatment the archers of rameses the third at medinet habu made an effort which is almost successful to present themselves in perspective the row of helmets slopes downwards and the row of bows slopes upwards with praiseworthy regularity but the men's feet are all on the same level and do not therefore follow the direction of the other lines this mode of representation is not uncommon during the theban period it was generally adopted when men or animals ranged in line had to be shown in the act of doing the same thing but it was subject to the grave drawback or what was in the egyptian eyes the grave drawback of showing the body of the first man only and of almost entirely hiding the rest of the figures when therefore it was found impossible to range all upon the same level without hiding some of their number the artist frequently broke his masses up into groups and placed one above the other on the same vertical plane their height in no wise depends on the place they occupy in the perspective of the tableau but only upon the number of rows required by the artist to carry out his idea if two rows of figures are sufficient he divides his space horizontally into equal parts if he requires three rows he divides it into three parts and so on when however it is a question of mere accessories they are made out on a smaller scale secondary scenes are generally separated by a horizontal line but this line is not indispensable when masses of figures formed in regular order had to be shown the vertical planes lapped over so to speak according to the caprice of the limner 
at the battle of kadesh the files of egyptian infantry rise man above man waist high from top to bottom of the phalanx while those of the keta or hittite battalions show but one head above another it was not only in their treatment of men and animals that the egyptians allowed themselves this latitude houses trees land and water were as freely misrepresented an oblong rectangle placed upright or on its side and covered with regular zigzags represents a canal lest one should be in doubt as to its meaning fishes and crocodiles are put in to show that it is water and nothing but water boats are seen floating upright upon this edgewise surface the flocks ford it where it is shallow and the angler with his line marks the spot where the water ends and the bank begins sometimes the rectangle is seen suspended like a framed picture about halfway of the height of several palm trees whereby we are given to understand a tank bordered on both sides by trees sometimes again as in the tomb of rekmara the trees are laid down in rows round the four sides of a square pond while a profile boat conveying a dead man in his shrine hauled by slaves also shown in profile floats on the vertical surface of the water the theban catacombs of the ramesside period supply abundant examples of contrivances of this kind and having noted them we end by not knowing which most to wonder at the obstinacy of the egyptians in not seeking to discover the natural laws of perspective or the inexhaustible wealth of resources which enabled them to invent so many false relations between the various parts of their subjects when employed upon a very large scale their methods of composition shock the eye less than when applied to small subjects we instinctively feel that even the ablest artist must sometimes have played fast and loose with the laws of perspective if tasked to cover the enormous surfaces of pyramid pylons hence the unities of the subject are never strictly observed in these enormous bas-reliefs the main object being to perpetuate the memory of a victorious pharaoh that pharaoh necessarily plays the leading part but instead of selecting from among his striking deeds some one leading episode pre-eminently calculated to illustrate his greatness the egyptian artist delighted to present the successive incidents of his campaign at a single coup de loyal thus treated the pylons of luxor and the ramesseum show a syrian night attack upon the egyptian camp a seizure of spies sent by the prince of the keta for the express purpose of being caught and giving false intelligence of his movements the king's household troops surprised and broken by the ketan chariots the battle of kadesh and its various incidents so furnishing us as it were with a series of illustrated dispatches of the syrian campaign undertaken by rameses the second in the fifth year of his reign after this fashion precisely did the painters of the earliest italian schools depict within the one field and in one uninterrupted sequence the several episodes of a single narrative the scenes are irregularly dispersed over the surface of the wall without any marked lines of separation and as with the bas-reliefs upon the column of trajan one is often in danger of dividing the groups in the wrong place and of confusing the characters this method is reserved almost exclusively for official art in the interior decoration of temples and tombs the various parts of the one subject are distributed in rows ranged one above the other from the ground line to the cornice thus another difficulty is added to the number of those which prevent us from understanding the style and intention of egyptian design we often imagine that we are looking at a series of isolated scenes when in fact we have before our eyes the disjecta membra of a single composition take for example one wall side of the tomb of tahotep at saqqara if we would discover the link which divides these separate scenes we shall do well to compare this wall subject with the mosaic at palestrina a monument of greco-roman time which represents almost the same scenes 
grouped however after a style more familiar to our ways of seeing and thinking the nile occupies the immediate foreground of the picture and extends as far as the foot of the mountains in the distance towns rise from the water's edge and not only towns but obelisks farmhouses and towers of greco-italian style more like the buildings depicted in pompeian landscapes than the monuments of the pharaohs of these buildings only the large temple in the middle distance to the right of the picture with its pylon gateway and four assyrian colossi recalls the general arrangement of egyptian architecture to the left a party of sportsmen in a large boat are seen in the act of harpooning the hippopotamus and crocodile to the right a group of legionaries drawn up in front of the temple and preceded by a priest salute a passing galley towards the middle of the foreground in the shade of an arched trellis thrown across a small branch of the nile some half-clad men and women are singing and carousing little papyrus skiffs each rowed by a single boatman and other vessels fill the vacant spaces of the composition behind the buildings we see the commencement of the desert the water forms large pools at the base of the overhanging hills and various animals real or imaginary are pursued by shaven-headed hunters in the upper part of the picture now precisely after the manner of the roman mosaicist the egyptian artist placed himself as it were on the nile and reproduced all that lay between his own standpoint and the horizon in the wall painting the river flows along the line next the floor boats come and go and boatmen fall to blows with punting poles and gaffs in the division next above we see the river bank and the adjoining flats where a party of slaves hidden in the long grasses trap and catch birds higher still boat making rope making and fish curing are going on finally in the highest register of all next the ceiling are depicted the barren hills and undulating plains of the desert where greyhounds chase the gazelle and hunters trammel big game with the lasso each longitudinal section corresponds in fact with a plane of the landscape but the artist instead of placing his planes in perspective has treated them separately and placed them one above the other we find the same disposition of the parts in all egyptian tomb paintings scenes of inundation and civil life are arranged along the base of the wall mountain subjects and hunting scenes being invariably placed high up sometimes interposed between these two extremes the artist has introduced subjects dealing with the pursuits of the herdsman the field labourer and the craftsman elsewhere he suppresses these intermediary episodes and passes abruptly from the watery to the sandy region thus the mosaic of palestrina and the tomb-like paintings of pharaonic egypt reproduce the same group of subjects treated after the conventional styles and methods of two different schools of art like the mosaic the wall scenes of the tomb formed not a series of independent scenes but an ordinary composition the utility of which is readily recognized by such as are skilled to read the art language of the period end of chapter four section one Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.